All right. Good morning, everyone. Um, we are in our series on the Bible. And we are, I don't know, like, I think four or five weeks in. And um, today we're going to talk a little bit about human authorship. And it's actually a... Are there any of those books over there? Yeah, there's one right here. If you guys would like... Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, we got, that's right. Good call. Okay. Um, like I said, we're about four or five. I guess I could look and tell you because we're following this. We're one, two, three, four. So this is starting the fifth session. And this is a two-part series. Um, uh, next week, I'm actually out of town for business. But um, we're going to pick back up this series the following week. And so the unique thing about this is if there's lingering questions or if there's something that you're just like... I've been wondering this for a long time, and I can't answer it now. We'll take it down and bring it back for the next session, because I think human authorship can be a bit of a quote-unquote touchy subject um, to some individuals thinking about textual criticism and the history of, of uh, Christianity and the scriptures. But, you know, thankful that this Bible, our Bible, the book of, of the Lord, has been standing the test of time for thousands of years in the face of all of this criticism and um, in the face of all of the um, uh, the rejection by by a lot of scholars so we'll open up with prayer and then we'll uh, we'll dive into the session so let us pray uh, Heavenly Father thank you for your love thank you for your grace and your sovereignty that we can trust in that father thank you for the scriptures that we have um, that you have uh, so clearly inspired human authors frail uh, weak and um, broken individuals to write texts that reflect your heart and your will and your purpose and father just Pray that we would be encouraged by the discussion, uh, be encouraged by digging further into the scriptures, um, and maybe learn more um, to be able to trust in you more, uh, to trust in your promises, and to learn more about how to uh, frame our lives and to use these scriptures to influence and to uh, um, hold to our heart uh, that we can act those out in our daily lives. Father, thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for this group. Um, be with me as I bring this lesson. May I speak truth and glorify you. And it's in these things that we pray. Uh, amen. So actually, as I was thinking about this lesson, I looked at just the book, the book itself. And it's written by Derek Thomas, um, who is a pretty prominent, I believe, Scottish theologian, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but he is, uh, resides in the States. And if you look at just the title of the, Bi or the, the book, it says, The Bible, God's Inerrant Word. And as we're spending 13 weeks, 12 or 13 weeks, talking about the Bible, that little word, inerrant, caught my attention just because it carries so much weight to say the word inerrant about anything. And if you look at the Oxford Dictionary, the way the Oxford Dictionary defines inerrant is incapable of being wrong. That is a hefty definition when you apply it to something that we have been talking about for thousands of years that says it's incapable of being wrong. And I'm thankful that this is an inerrant book, but the word inerrant takes a lot of weight. And so this naturally means the entirety of Scripture is complete truth. And that we cling to the thesis statement, I think, from 2 Timothy. We've talked about this last week when John set up this discussion on, on inspiration so well. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 uh, and 17 are like the thesis of what we're talking about in inerrancy and kind of, I think, the, the undertone of this entire section on the Bible. And that reads, and you can probably quote it from heart because you've heard it a thousand times, but all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And there's a lot packed into both of those verses. But I think if you look at the foundational statement in that verse, it's breathed out by God, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and that the um, it, it, for training in righteousness. So 
This, throughout this entire series, we're working through all aspects of inerrancy. I mean, we're going to have a specific section near the end on talking about inerrancy, but honestly, the entire series, talking about um, words of Scripture, moving into Revelation, how God revealed that to us, inspiration, the different methods or thinking about the way that the Scriptures were inspired that we talked about last week, and we'll, we'll sort of... Um, recap that. We'll discuss authorship today and in a future lesson, and then we're going to move into talking about how the canon was created. That's another one that I'll be teaching later on. The clarity and perspicuity of Scripture, the interpretation of Scripture, and the application of Scripture, but it all hinges upon the contingency <laughs> that this book is incapable of being wrong. And so just kind of take that as we think about this, the, this discussion on human authorship, because when you say incapable of being wrong, that means that the words written by fallible humans are incapable of being wrong. It, it, it takes a lot of weight to think about that. So let's recap the previous lessons. Um, I'm not going to go in as deep as John did last time, uh, because he did a really good job of discussing the recap on the types of revelation, but I guess just as a, um, to throw it out there, the two different kinds of revelation that we really consider. Uh, what are they? There's one that we see through creation. General. General. That's general or natural revelation. So God's speaking through creation, the beauty of the earth, the mountains. I mean, my gosh, when, you know, when we go hike, you know, we were in Seattle earlier this year and we got to go to Mount Rainier and just standing beside this unbelievable mountain, I, it just, it, the way that God has revealed himself through creation is just amazing to me. Um, I don't know, I don't remember who said this. It may have been C.S. Lewis, um, or may have been someone else, but the numinous, this, this idea of just being overwhelmed by the spirit and by the majesty of our creator and what he's done in creation. Um, I often say that when I'm out in nature, um, or Dave out mountain biking, like in Moab, or seeing places like that, seeing God revealing himself through creation. So we have natural or general revelation. So what's the other kind of revelation? Special. Special, yeah. So the God speaking into creation. So we started with that, these two different types of revelation, digging into that, getting into inspiration. So we're going to dig a little more into the two types of inspiration, um, organic and mechanical, because that really sets us up to have the right discussion about human authorship because it really impacts um, the way that we think about human authors based off the way that they were inspired. And so we do have to recap a little bit about what John said and take it just one level deeper, kind of like Inception. You know, we're going to do a, a dream within a dream. We're going to go one level deeper into inspiration. But uh, do you guys remember overall what we hold to as a church or what, we, what kind of inspiration we would say is the... Um, inspiration we adhere to. I actually have it just pulled up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Regarding the scriptures. Regarding the scripture. We believe in the verbal, plenary, or complete, God-breathed inspiration of the Bible, both the Old and New Testament, consisting of 66 books, in Aaron, in the original writings. There's a lot right there. But we believe in the verbal, plenary. So just going back to recap that, verbal being the very words of scripture. Good thing I'm in the medical field because I know you can't read that writing. And then plenary. Plenary being, as Dave just read from our statement of faith, the complete or full. So you've got complete and full and the very words of scripture. And so this view really holds that all scripture is inspired in its words as well as in its meaning. So I've already set this up for us and kind of even said it, but if we're discussing these words of scripture, discussing that it's complete and full, we're also acknowledging that God used these human authors, authors that if human, like me, like us, are fallible, are broken, are weak, and also have fallible words and human tendencies. So he used these individuals to create this inerrant book of Scripture. And so that's what we're going to really dig into a little bit. 
And our frame of reference for these discussions are found in 2 Peter. So if someone has 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, uh, if you can read that. I should have set that up. I should have uh, said that before. So uh, play the little Jeopardy theme and uh, <laughs> wait for someone to find that that wants to read it. Second Peter 1, 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the, the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Leona. So really, in, I believe it's 2021, 20 if you look further down, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So that's a key distinctive in that verse. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so using that as the backdrop, using that as the foundation, we can see that, we, that, that it gives credence to this verbal plenary inspiration into man. But it can be very challenging to think. Some, one of the theories, and we'll talk about it, is that it was given directly, dictated directly by the Spirit, dictated directly by God to man. And we're going to kind of tease that out and see why that that theory doesn't necessarily hold up and even look at scripture that supports that theory because you know it's really hard to find anywhere in the bible that says you know this is the way the bible is inspired because it doesn't really exist in the scriptures to say that but scriptures give us the idea and the framework to say that we were inspired by a particular method so we'll take a step back we're going to kind of start 10,000 foot view and then start bringing it in to to focus so just some trivia, because I think this is interesting, and it's in the book here. How many words do you think are contained in the body of Scripture? Just words. This is just good trivia. One million three hundred. One million. Three quarters of a million words. Sixty-six books, Dave said that, written in three distinctive languages. Hebrew, Aramaic for the Old Testament, and Greek for the New Testament. Over a period of thousand years or more, by how many authors? Do you guys know? Uh, this is just pure trivia. Forty. Forty. Exactly. Forty authors. Very good. So we have that. We have a almost a book of almost a million words. Over a thousand years, forty different individuals authoring it in three different languages. And then we look at the type of genres and literature. Is it one? Is there, is there one genre of literature? Okay, let's just name off a few that are in here. I've got the whole list in here, but just name off a few types of genres or stories or, or prose or whatever you want that this contained within Scripture. Poetry. Poetry. That's one. That's a big one. That's Get one the that's easy that. one out of the way. All right, we're good. Do what? Get the easy, Get the one, the easy one, out one out of the way. What else? Letters. Historical. I think I heard another one too up there. Letters. Letters. Prophetical. Wisdom. Wisdom. I think the list goes on. I'll read the excerpt from here. He says, It's contained history, prophecy, sermons, letters, formal covenant treaties, travel narratives, poetry, parables, proverbs, architectural instructions, apocalypses, gospels, laws, and more. So it, the purpose is it's not a single type of literature or genre. So it goes with that. The literal interpretation means exactly what it says. You interpret sensitive to that type of literary genre that you have. And if it was written by 40 different authors over a thousand years with 15 different types of genres or literature, every single author had a different perspective. They had a different stylistic writing. They had a different thought process. They may have been culturally different. You know, Moses was culturally different than David in some way. Moses was culturally different than Paul or Peter. They all had their own unique backgrounds and intricacies that contributed to the way that they authored. And then we've got 
the, the author of Hebrews, who's a very refined literary style. You compare that to Paul, who almost wrote like a lawyer, because you look at this very laid out, very um, thorough arguments and very backed up. You look at Revelation. Revelation is more of a colloquial grammar. And so all of that filters into the fact that this was authored by human individuals. God used fallible people. You know, Ryan said it in the Exodus series that, that God used broken individuals to accomplish his purpose. He used broken individuals in that same manner to create a body of Scripture that is called inerrant. By, it, divinely inspired by him, but human authors wrote this. But, but look back to 2 Peter and, and 2 Timothy that we talked about. So, you know, you see all this and you're like, well, my goodness, how can we trust something that's written by human hands when we're fallible, when there's poetry and history? How can this all actually come together to form the scripture? So I guess I should back up and say, too, this, this particular lesson is a little more surface, talking about the use of humans and some of the theories. Then the next one on human authorship, if there's questions, I'll address those. But also it digs a little further into looking at the types of words and the types of um, of some of these, digging into that and how um, humans used um, their own words um, that were inspired by God to create scripture. And so we'll dig a little deeper into that, but this is more of a surface, a little technical, but we definitely have some scripture to back things up. But look back to 2 Timothy and 2 Peter. So you've got this sort of swirling around in your mind. You're like, my goodness, how can this be? But we see and have, have we can take solace from the scripture that it's it's all breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. So that's the, um, that's the comfort we take from 2 Timothy. The one we take from 2 Peter, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. So we've got that as the foundational backdrop of understanding this. All right, that's sort of the first half of today's lesson. Any questions, any comments from there, anything... Any, you know, I want this to be a dialogue too. So if there's if there's questions or comments, please feel free to, to bring them up. You can always stop me as well. Um, I should have said that to begin with. But anything right now uh, before we move on. All right. So we'll spend a minute and talk about this mechanical because I brought it up. Mechanical versus organic inspiration. And just as it says, mechanical, you know, tinkering with certain things, being very precise, mechanical inspiration notes that the biblical writers were very passive in this process of interpretation. That they were simply vessels, that the Bible was being directly dictated entirely by the Spirit to these individuals. So that's what would be held by mechanical inspiration. Which sounds pretty, you know, reasonable. That you know, you know, you're a you're a vessel of, of God. The the Spirit is dictating it directly to the um, uh, to the individual writers. Um, but what are some of the issues with mechanical inspiration? So I'll, I'll put here direct dictation. I guess what do you think might be some of the issues with that? No, she's got one. Yeah, but she had two. Yeah. She had two, that's right. She was, she was extra, extra caffeinated. So when you say direct dictation, yeah. we're talking about, like, God's handwriting on tablets, or we're talking about... Okay, so that, that's a great question. There, there, there are specific instances in the scripture, that being one, where it was directly dictated to Moses, I mean, on the tablets. So, I mean, that, that, is, a, that is one instance in the scripture of a direct description, direct inspiration, directly from the mouth of God. But let's take, for example, um, Paul. That, there we go. So let's say that every writing that Paul authored was directly dictated by the Spirit. Well, what, what are issues? With, or not, not just with Paul, but that's, that's, that's an example of mechanical inspiration. So direct dictation means that God spoke, but if God speaks, like, creation happens. Okay. And so like, we're at like a completely different level than we're not making a book. We are doing all this. Yeah. And now you're back into general revelation if 
God speaks and it happens, right? Mm -hmm. Directly. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a valid way to look at it because you know if you look at the, some the way that some theologians break it up when God speaks it's a let there be like you said versus um, let it sprout like being inspired up to the earth like you know the earth, God giving um, the power to creation to be to bring, generate fruit it's not directly from God but He's giving it to creation to be able to grow fruit so let it sprout I think that's the way Mike Horton. Um, explains it in um, a couple lessons that he teaches on inspiration. And I think one of the issues with it is you lose all of that ability in every single one of these literary styles to have some influence from their background. Because as I mentioned, Paul was wrote like a lawyer. He was very thorough, very critical, and created really elegant arguments. And versus the writer of Hebrews was a very strict literary style. So if you look at Romans versus Hebrews, they're very different. And to, you know, it just doesn't really hold up that if everything was directed, directly dictated by the Spirit, that you would have these unique influences in there. So that's one. And yeah. I'd add to just looking at the Gospels, then you look at the difference between a tax collector, a physician, and you look at the difference between John and Mark. They're very, very different interpretate not interpretations, but influences absolute context for in essence the same message. Mm -hmm. So it may be direct and mechanical to all four of those, but their their context for who they are as as a human being goes mm -hmm. into what what actually gets written down. Exactly. But I also think it was direct then from God, then he's kind of going against the whole purpose of humans in creation in the first place yeah because like the angels were given one choice and that's it once right mm -hmm. and there was like you're, you're in or you're out and no more mm -hmm. but it seems like with the general revelation and the way the bible is written there's supposed to be the ability to say god wants to be a little bit mysterious so that people have to seek him out and if you're doing it directly and saying this is what it is there's it's, it's yes or no yeah, that's an interesting angle. That's an interesting angle thinking about the, the overall purpose of, of God and the fact that we have um, finite minds to understand the infinite being. That's virtually, it, it's impossible because we are finite and we are limited in our capacity to, um, to understand and interpret. So that, that's, a, that's an interesting angle here. You know, the, the other one before I move on to, uh, to digging it is... Um, you know, you spoke about the Gospels, Dave, and, and I don't want to open up a can of worms, but it could because you may have heard, you may have heard this in the past. But purely from the text itself, there's something called the synoptic problem. Between the four Gospels, there are some cri uh, uh, cri uh, um, critical scholars say there's uh, inconsistencies in the four Gospels, and they lay it out. Um, you know, actually, I had a textbook in undergrad where um, you, you flip through the pages, and on each of these were the four Gospels, and you have the same verse in Greek um, and through all four Gospels, and it points out those textual criticisms. So if it was directly dictated from the Spirit, then I don't really think that would happen. Now, I'm not giving credence to textual criticism. I'm not even giving credence to the synoptic problem, but... That is one pretty clear issue with saying that it's directly dictated by the Spirit. Because if it was directly dictated by God, I really think we'd have grammatical um, changes or even scholars that could be able to find those. Because it would be, um, in that sense, perfect in every single word in grammatical iota. So I think that's, that's one issue. But again, those are criticisms that the Scripture faces, um, which... We can be confident, though, that the Word is completely inerrant, and I will stand up here and, and say that, that, that I believe, and this church believes, the Word is inerrant, it's complete, and it's wholly inspired by God, you know, 2 Timothy 3.16 that we just talked about. So, But just bringing you aware that there are pieces of criticism for the Scripture, such as things like the synoptic problem, that scholars will um, attack Scripture by doing. But let's, let's dig in where I was going with that. So if agency, this is, I, I used my court because I respect his thinking to help me prepare for this. And so some of this is some thought by my court. So if agency, agency being the act or the function of, um, so it's either human agency or agency by God, if agency is univocal or the same, having one meaning, so if it was truly dictated for both God and humans, um, then 
the question arises, and I think this is really, really prominent. So who acts more in the production of Scripture, if that's the case? Was, is God the author of Romans, or is Paul the author of Romans? And I think if you're saying it's, it, you, you create issues whenever you say that, that agency is univocal from God and for humans, because it clearly was written by a human hand. So if we operate on the premise as that we understand and we hold true of organic inspiration or this verbal plenary inspiration, then the role of human authors in producing scripture is both human and or entirely human and entirely God. And we'll kind of get into that. So one example is in Genesis, thinking about Joseph and his experience with his brothers. Joseph could easily attribute the act of his brother's treachery to different agents, different individuals, with different intentions. So those different agents being humans and God. So this is Genesis 50, verse 20. So listen to this and think about what we just said um, about this organic inspiration. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So using this idea that it's organically inspired, that the role of human authors in producing scriptures, both human and God, Joseph is able to actually like attribute his brother's actions to two different agents. Because to the human brothers, it was meant for evil. But in God's purpose, it was meant for something completely different. Or, for example, when we ascribe inspiration to Luke's account of Paul's speech in Athens. If you go to Acts, I didn't actually realize this until I dug in and was preparing for this lesson. Um, Paul quotes um, pagan philosophers and poets in Acts. If you go to Acts 17.28, um, I'll read that because I think it's interesting. I had that up over here. That's 12. We can just easily get to 17. So yeah, I'll back up to, uh, to, to 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and... Wait a minute. Oh yeah. For in him we live and move and have our own being, and even some of your own poets have said... For we indeed are his offspring. So, this is Luke's account of Paul's speech in Athens. So, are we really saying that the writings of the pagan philosophers and the poets were inspired, even, even though Paul quotes them in 1728? So, remember that mechanical inspiration would say every bit of scripture is directly and entirely dictated by the Spirit. So, if that were the case... Why would the Spirit, why would God feel the need to use things from pagan philosophers and poets? And I think that's an interesting point that, that Mike Horton raises of using things in the Scripture that are not necessarily scriptural or that are, that are quoting pagan philosophers, poets, or extra-biblical sources. One, um, as I found a, a piece of um, uh, um, a lesson from, from Ligonier, look at 1 Kings 14.29. In that verse, it says, Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Judah? And I had to go back and look because I just thought that was talking about Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. But actually, that's referring to a non-inspired historical source that the author of First and Second Kings had consulted. So the use of this, these sources... And the use of, of talking about pagan philosophers and poets would be entirely unnecessary if the Lord dictated the scriptures to biblical authors. So I think that's, that's an interesting perspective, and it, it really helped me in thinking about this idea of mechanical versus organic inspiration. Um, I think, again, Mike Horton is really helpful, and I'll read this quote. Um, sorry to everyone, when you, you know when I teach, I do like to bring quotes, but, but frankly, I can't say it as well as other people. Uh, so I, I like to, to, to read what other people say. 
So Mike Horton says, whatever these speakers intended, God's intention was to use these lines in the script of his unfolding drama, although these pagan sources are not treated as normative. Therefore, it's impossible to treat every word as normative, much less as the direct utterance of God. Yet the Bible as a whole is God's inspired script for the drama of redemption. Because that's what we hold is that this book that we have here, it's useful for reproof, for correction, for teaching. It tells us how we should model our lives and it gives us those helpful things. But the entire purpose of this book from the beginning to the end is the unfolding drama of redemption that we're broken humans and need a savior. And every single verse in this is, is designed and inspired by God in a way to bring that drama to life throughout the scriptures. And I think that's a really helpful uh, uh, thought process. And so we would ascribe more to organic inspiration. And this is the belief that the writers were fully involved in the process of inspiration, that their own distinctive intellectual, cultural, linguistic, and personality traits contributed to the overall body of this text. And it also emphasizes the fact that this process was historical, that it occurred over a time frame. It wasn't unilateral, but, or it wasn't a singular, but it was over a period. It was a process in which revelation was given and the evident circumstances of the time and place of each book, because the circumstances of what happened in the Exodus were completely different than what happened when Paul was uh, going on his missional journeys. And so these books reflect those unique intricacies of each of those time periods. Again, I think Mike Horton's really helpful. He says here that, that is, God sanctifies the natural gifts, the personalities, the histories, the languages, and the cultural inheritance of the biblical writers. These are not blemishes or obstacles to divine inspiration, but the very means that God employs for accommodating his revelation, I really like this, to our creaturely capacity. <laughs> because we're certainly created, created. We are creatures. Yet he has given us the ability to, I'll use it even in the way that I said earlier, to be these vessels for a purpose that we had complete utility in writing these scriptures, not we, but the, the, the biblical authors did that were divinely inspired by the hand of God, and he had his providential hand over this process. And I think that's really beautiful. And I had not thought of it this way until um, I was preparing. So think about the Christological analogy, Christ and his birth. This reminds us that the Word, Christ, the Logos, became flesh. <laughs> so the incarnation itself, to, to parents, this was a direct declaration of God. Let it be. And he became, because he was born to a virgin woman. I mean, that was direct inspiration in that sense. Let it be, so to speak. But his birth was part of that natural process. <laughs> that natural process gifted to females on this earth that they can give birth. Um, and he said um, it's a natural earthly process. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that Christ's physical and intellectual growth were gradual gains through his ordinary means, through his life. He was grown and he was educated and he was uh, spent time at the temple. His, um, these were through ordinary means. And his humanity, his humanity, he's fully God and fully human, was not charged with some superhuman abilities, but his humanity was completely ours with the exception of his sin. And there's a really beautiful point that we're going to make by saying all of this and thinking about Christ and his divine um, birth, his ordinary life on earth. Hebrews, it says in 4.15, you probably know this, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, uh, excuse me, who we, we, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Christ has our full humanity. The only thing that he doesn't have is our sin. So I really like the way Mike Horton, this is that beautiful point, if God can assume our full humanity without sin, then he can speak through the fully human words of prophets and apostles without error. 
I think that's incredibly powerful when you think about that. When you think about Christ and you think about that his life and the fact that he can be within it, he can take on human form without sin, and that's possible, then certainly it's possible that God can speak through the full human words without error. And I, that was just really, when I saw that, I really honed in on that. I'm like, that really gives some clarity to me about this whole idea of inspiration. So any thoughts or questions there? We're going to wrap up with um, uh, talking about God's words and human words and kind of digging just a little more into that as we close. That's a, that's a really cool point because when yeah. you think about Christ as it relates to us being 100% human, not only did he not have the ability or not only did he not sin, he was born like Adam, not yeah. like us. Exactly. So he was born with the ability without the domain of sin. Exactly. This is the best way to say that. Mm-hmm. That really does give him a complete different authority to speak than we would ever have. Absolutely. And <laughs> when you say that, David, I, it, that, that really ties into these next points because he has such an authority, yet on countless occasions, and I think I'm, I'm skipping ahead just a little bit, but in countless occasions... Um, Jesus refers back to the Old Testament. He refers back to scriptures that were already written by human hands as authoritative. So the most authoritative being on earth refers back to things that were written by human hands as an authoritative body of work. That's a tremendous amount of credence, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But on countless occasions, the scriptures confirm the use of these human words and human actions as part of God's declarative plan or, or it cites out the scriptures as authoritative. So think about Hebrews 1. Anybody, I mean, you can look it up, but does anybody know what the first verse of Hebrews says? It's okay, you can look it up. Hebrews 1 1. <laughs> the only reason I know is because I prepared, so I've got a cheat sheet in front of me. <laughs> read it? Yeah, read it. Beth. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Yeah. Right there, it says, long ago, he spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He uses these other human words by the prophets. He talks about it in, in, in Hebrews. Jeremiah 1.9, Then the Lord put out his hand, touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Peter, I think this is really interesting. Peter refers to Paul's letters as scripture. He elevates it. He, he, he takes a whole other level, takes it one more level in 2 Peter 3, 15-16. I'll read it for, for time's sake. But if you want to turn there, you can. 2 Peter 3, 15-16. Listen to what Peter does as he talks about Paul's scriptures or Paul's letters near the end of these verses. He takes it one level up and really declares them as authoritative. Peter goes, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given them, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So he takes it and elevates it to a whole other level by declaring it as authoritative. So on countless occasions, the scriptures confirming the use of other scriptures written by human hands as an authoritative body of work. And I think really importantly, as I said, um, Dave, whenever you um, I brought this up, if, if you look at Luke 4, 16 through 21, this is a really powerful example in my opinion. I mean, as I was preparing one of the articles, it listed all the places that Jesus regards human um, uh, or scripture uh, written by human hands as authoritative. And it was a list of like 15 or 20 different verses. We don't have time to read all those today. But one of them is Luke 4, 16 through 21. So someone has that if you'd like to read that. Luke 4, 16 through 21. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, 
The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus calls that scripture. The most authoritative being, thank you for reading, the most authoritative being calls something written by human hand scripture. <laughs> and he quotes it time and time again, refers back to the Old Testament, refers back to scripture written by human hands. So again, I think I'm beating a dead horse, but on countless occasions the scriptures use other scriptures to confirm and be considered authoritative. And they're, they're authored by human hands with different perspectives, different cultural tendencies. I think, you know, this is really, I, I didn't think about this until preparing. Sanctification is an important category for also understanding inspiration. Now, what do I mean by that? I, I think this, it took me a minute to wrap my mind around this. Um, an important point is that the very words of us as humans are the authors of the, of the Bible, um, are they considered holy? Not really. It's God's calling and gift that sets the ordinary apart for his extraordinary use. It's not the essence of the human being's words. This is what Mike Horton says. Not the essence of the words, but God's use of them in the service of his covenantal purposes that sets them apart from ordinary human speech. So it's not like the words that, that, that are being written are now all of a sudden holy. It's, it's the God's purpose of using them. And so one of the really helpful examples is the exchange between Moses and God back in Exodus. So Moses protests up front when he comes to God. He says, you know, God directs him to go speak. And Moses is like, I have poverty of speech. I am poor in speech. I can't do this. And God replies back to him, now therefore go and I'll be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. That's Exodus 4.12. All right. Well, then Moses comes back to rebuts against God, and he says, okay, God, you've got to send somebody else. I can't do this. And God stands his position firm, and he allows Aaron to assist him, but God still insists that Moses is the one to communicate from God to Aaron. And he says in Exodus, you shall be as God to him, and taking your hand the staff, which you shall do the signs. Okay, great. When Pharaoh then responded by increasing the oppressive burden of the people, Moses came back to God and says, God... How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? God sanctifies his lips, attests his commission by performing signs and wonders. So it's not the direct words that Moses is speaking, but it's God's purpose that he's infusing into these words over the story as the stories unfold that actually make them holy, make them what they truly are. And as he says, um, uh, you know, as Horton says again, it's not the essence of, these being, of the human being's words but God's use of them in the service of his covenantal purposes that sets them apart from just ordinary human speech, ordinary written things on a piece of paper. Okay, there's a lot in there. Um, I'm going to close with a few points, and then I'll open it up for any questions. So we've learned that God uses ordinary humans to bring about his scripture. I think if you look in the, the Thomas chapter here, he makes a couple points that I think are really interesting. Just another um, collection of thoughts that sort of hammer home what we talked about with different inspiration. Isaiah advanced our understanding of holiness and advanced our understanding of the doctrine of God. Differently, Hosea and that beautiful story elaborates on the nature of covenantal love. Ezekiel, Ezekiel comes to us from the place of an exile or a perspective of an exile who expands on the nature of God's glory and sees the impending destruction of Jerusalem. Like he, he's there and, and can expand on the nature of God's glory. That's a very different perspective of the story of Hosea. Or Paul in the New Testament. Again, completely different cultural position. Expands upon the nature of justification and how we have this beautiful unity with Christ. And in the book, I'll, I'll quote from the book, the point here is the revelation of God to man is not flat, but it's progressive. And that's what I was saying over time, that it's not, it's not in one singular moment, but it's progressive over time. And that God employed the authors of Scripture with their unique personalities and backgrounds to advance our understanding of his purpose and his grace in the gospel. 
And I think finally, because we're going to talk about canonization of Scripture in the future, we'll dig in a little more on uh, specific um, instances of human authorship and kind of tease those out in the next lesson. But again, I'll close with Mike Horton because I think it's just, it really brings things together in this, in this quote. He says, although inspiration pertains exclusively to the original speech acts that are included in the canon, God's extraordinary providence ensured the integrity of the process that led to inscripturation. We have no reason to deny that the later editors common, or committed orally transmitted revelation to textual form and collected them into now what we know as the canonical books. In the words of the Reformed scholastic um, Johannes uh, Wellebus, he says, God's word at first was unwritten before Moses' time, but after Moses it was written, when God, in his most wise counsel, would have it to be sealed and confirmed by the prophets and the apostles. In the interpretation of verbal plenary inspiration, the original words of Scripture were given by the miracle of inspiration, and the process of compiling them, editing, and preserving this text was superintended by God's providence. So God's providence over all of this, through human authors and thousands of years, he was providential in his assembling and assemblage of all of these stories, poets or poetry, um, historical letters, prophecy, everything into what we know as the scripture. So a lot in there. Hopefully it was helpful. Um, thoughts, questions. Um, like I said, we've got another section to dig a little further down into instances of human authorship, but this was the very cursory um, introduction to kind of give us the foundational backbone of diving into it in the next lesson. So thoughts, concerns? Thanks, hey, you're welcome. Any lingering questions, things that I can take down? Because this is a, one of the first times, I think, in our Sunday school sessions that, the, that a particular topic gets two lessons. So there, we do have the unique ability, if there are questions lingering, that I can take them and address them in the next lesson. As a child, I can remember there was just a lot of discussion in the church when a new translation was coming about. Mm. You know, we had the, the King James Version and then the Revised Standard Version, and that just caused all kinds of discussion. Absolutely. I mean, you know, thinking about the, the fact that we certainly don't have the intentional or the, the original intention of the way that they were written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. And I mean, you've got volumes and volumes of Greek grammars and ways to interpret things and lost um, documents and codexes and the way that the Greek texts were formulated and all the different ways to interpret certain verses. And even as Ryan said in... Uh, the, the sermons a couple weeks ago, that entire section of John wasn't even included in some of the early manuscripts. So you, then you come to the different, uh, the different um, translations and the different ways to um, create it. And you've got King James and you've got ESV and you've got NIV and the New Revised Standard. So yes, it does create some um, uh, disconcerting thoughts uh, to some minds. Um, it, it is interesting to think about a, a body of scholars and theologians and experts coming together to create the appropriate um, way to interpret these original texts. And it, it does cause a lot of consternation. Uh, maybe I can throw in then um, just a little bit about interpretation um, or the, uh, the way that these um, translations were developed in the next lesson. So that's a, that's a good one maybe like address some of the common or I don't even know what the common critiques like what verses are oh like the the textual criticism yeah, issues they, no well just like well if 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 someone comes and says well obviously this verse means that it's error and error I see you know yeah. what I mean let's mm -hmm. so like maybe talk about um uh what are some common common defenses or Arguments, arguments against, against apologetical, yes. ap apologetical <laughs> prep, <I can't> <laughs> yeah, so to speak. Okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe that would be helpful. I mean, I know it's not part of this lesson. I think it's coming up, but looking at 
actually it's not in the book, but when we look at this church looks at the Bible in whole as a as a redemptive historical perspective in a book from redemption, as you said earlier. It's not necessarily looking at it from a grammatical or a literal oh, yeah. interpretation. Mm -hmm. So when you start to look at these and you lay that over the top of any one verse that might have a, a good debate on apologetics, what's the purpose of it? Is it, back as you said, is it redemptive? Is the arc of overall redemption from a historical perspective looked at? Or are you looking at it from a strictly grammatical or literal sense because we'd all have one eye out yeah. if this were the case. Absolutely. So how, how do we how do we make sure and look at the Bible from the right perspective? Yeah, I think that's a that's a really that, that would be a helpful distinction, particularly talking about relating it to human authorship and the fact that it was authored by human hands and how we're going to interpret that from, from that perspective. I just know it's nice to hear it again because years ago in undergrad, I heard it from a perspective of them trying to poke holes in everything, mm -hmm. poke holes in the faith. So to hear it from a perspective of building faith. Yeah. Is really refreshing. I agree because I had, I had a similar. Well, I guess I did go to um, an undergrad that had um, faith-believing individuals, but it was taught from a very critical perspective. So it was it was almost in a way of poking holes in it in some way. So, all right. Well, I'll pray and we can uh, we can be dismissed. Father, thank you, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for uh, the encouragement that these words are truth and we can hold to them. And we can cling to them in times of praise, in times of sadness, in times of grief. Um, that they bring truth and they sing truth. And that you had your hand over fallible, broken individuals to bring about your redemptive plan from the beginning to the end, Father. This is a, a text that we can go to time and time again to cling to. It's the only barometer of truth we have in the world that um, is full of pain and sorrow and brokenness and grief. We have a body of, of, of scripture that we can cling to that talks about this plan of your redemptive son, his death on the cross, and how we've been adopted into your family as firstborn because of that. Father, thank you for that. Thank you for this, this group and the conversation. May it be encouraging and fruitful. And uh, be with Ryan today as he brings us the message from, uh, from your word. And let us uh, hear with open hearts and open minds. It's in your name I pray. Amen.